When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My next guest is former CCM artist, Elisa Childers. Elisa has a rapidly growing YouTube channel and a podcast dedicated to one of my favorite subjects, the study of apologetics and current issues within the church. Elisa, great to have you here. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I, I can't believe what a small world it is. We grew up in the same area in Southern California. Yes. Uh, went to schools uh, near each other. Yes. And, uh, and, and we actually have a common love for this subject of apologetics. Yes, yes, very much. And, and it, it's interesting. I was in the entertainment industry. I guess I'm still in the entertainment industry. Uh, just have kind of a unique focus there. And you were in the entertainment industry as a CCM artist. So what was the name of the band that you were a part of? So I was in a teen pop group called Zoe Girl. And so we basically wanted to encourage young girls who were needing courage to stand up for Jesus in their public school campuses. And so I did that for about seven years. Okay, and, and then you made um, some, some changes or, or God called you into this area of apologetics. Now, some people are saying, what are you apologizing for? What, what, is, what is apologetics? Can you, can you give a simple definition? Yes, and, and people do make a lot of uh, assumptions about what apologetics is, but basically, it's just giving reasons for what you believe and why you believe it. So if you're a Christian and you've ever told somebody why you believe Jesus was raised from the dead or why you have put your trust in Jesus, then you've already done apologetics, basically. So, so those are those are huge questions. Why would that be interesting to you? I mean, here you are. You're out there singing about Jesus. You're part of the Zoe girls. You're the Christian Spice girls out there. Why do you now start studying these things? Did you have doubts about your own faith and what you were singing about? Uh, I did, actually. So I grew up in a Christian home. I was a very committed Christian my whole mm -hmm. life, but I never really thought deeply about why. Like I knew as a kid that the Bible was God's word, but if somebody would have asked me, why do you believe that? I probably would have just said, well, just because it is or because the Bible says so or something like that. And so I hadn't really given deep thought to the intellectual side of things until after Zoe Girl came off the road and my husband and I were attending a church in Nashville where we were living. Mm -hmm. And um, we loved it. And the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller study and discussion group after about eight months of us attending there. And in the context of this small group, he revealed that he was actually an agnostic. And so he began to walk the class through essentially what you, you may be hearing about this phenomenon called deconstruction, which is where Christians who grew up believing things, but maybe never really critically thought about them, begin to pick those things apart, explain them away, and often reject them. And so that's what happened to a lot of people in the class. Well, my husband and I decided to leave the church after a few months. And it was at that point when I was kind of isolated away and all those doubts that he had planted began to take root and really grow. And, and it sent me into my own deconstruction, which I didn't want that to happen to me. I didn't know what was happening to me, but I just cried out to God one night. And I just said, if you're real, if you really exist, if everything I've believed my whole life mm -hmm. is true, I have to know why and how. And so through a really cool series of events, the Lord led me to apologetics and I began to study. And it was years, I studied for years and became really settled in my faith. And it was at that point that he called me to maybe help other people who might be in a similar position. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a, a famous person, and I can't remember their name, who said um, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. And the mm. Bible speaks of not having a wicked heart of unbelief. Yes. And I know people like that, and, and I actually can feel the difference when I'm talking with somebody who has an honest question and they're doubting what they've believed because someone has given them a compelling argument against it. And I think that that's great because those sorts of questions actually lead us to honest answers that can strengthen our faith. That's right. But a, a wicked heart of unbelief is that, that settled, rooted, dig my heels in unbelief. I have uh, an aversion to God and to uh, his word or to the gospel. And I think that's where we get into the, that, that Romans 1, um, what can be known of God is clear and obvious to people, mm -hmm. their conscience bears witness, and yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they love the things of darkness, and there's that settled unbelief. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think a lot of people are confused about what faith is. They think that doubt is somehow the opposite of faith, but you're right, it's not doubt that's the opposite of faith, it's unbelief, because doubt can only bubble up within the, the context of belief. You can only doubt something if you believe, if you believe it. it. And I think it's actually an essential part, if it's honest doubt, if you're really wanting to seek truthful answers, it's, it's a part of being coming a mature Christian in your faith to say, well, let me recheck that why do I why do I think that and then walking through that and seeking truth but there can be types of doubt that somebody's just really looking for reasons to justify the unbelief that's already there and that would be a different thing so Elisa it's uh, it's apparent to me, I think to people who are watching you, that you're not squirming in your chair, uh, uncomfortable, hoping I don't ask you a difficult question that you can't answer. You seem to be confident in your faith. And this is a person who uh, has just told us that you had so many doubts that you were actually moving maybe toward agno an agnosticism that you didn't want to move toward. So um, what are some of the big ones mm -hmm. that were rocking your world? Yeah, for me, it, it mostly, the most foundational one had to do with the Bible because course, I had lived the... my whole life uh, to the best of my ability according to the Word of God. And so it, it, we did a lot of street ministry as a kid. I would go out to Hollywood Boulevard and pass out tracts and do all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And I, so I met a lot of atheists. I didn't grow up in a Christian bubble in that sense. I met Satanists and Wiccans and all kinds of different people. But nothing they said ever rattled me because I just was able to dismiss it and say, well, they just you know the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed it to them or they just don't believe in the Bible. But it was when this pastor who had really taken months to earn my respect and trust was able to intellectually knock the legs out from underneath the Bible, I, I found myself with no place to really stand. And so that was a huge just batch of questions I went through first. Like, do we have an accurate copy of what was recorded specifically with the New Testament? And how do we know that even if we have an accurate copy that what they were saying is actually truthful about what happened regarding Jesus and some of the events surrounding that? So that was probably the biggest one for me, uh, the biggest question. Because once I settled that question, of course, the existence of God first, but when moving on to the Bible, once I settled that question, uh, then it was really just, it, it was a lot smoother for me. A lot of the other doubts and questions I had just didn't feel quite as pressing. That's right, because all of the other uh, tenets of the faith, whether we're talking about the resurrection or we're talking about... Um, I don't know, pick your question, it's ultimately going to be uh, rooted and anchored by whether or not the scriptures are accurate, reliable, historical documents. Yeah, that's right. So, so what was it that brought you back around to confidence in the Word of God? 
hours and hours and hours of study, really. Well, and you know, the, the Lord, of course, shepherded me through that whole that whole process. Um, but it was just, I, I audited classes in seminaries. I read tons of books. I listened to debates. I just did everything I could to try to get the accurate information as it related to the reliability of the Bible. And so, uh, and, and beyond that, just looking into other questions like science and faith and how does that work together and things like that. But really that Bible question was just so huge. If, if, if we didn't even have an accurate copy of what they wrote, then how can we even know, like you said, the essentials of the faith or anything like that. And so uh, once that was settled for me, I, I felt a lot more peaceful in knowing that I wasn't crazy my whole life, that I really did have a relationship with Jesus my whole life and that the Bible is his word. But now I know that because I have intellectual reasons to go along with my experiential reasons mm. and and uh, my, because I didn't have a blind faith. I didn't have a, a shallow faith as a, as a kid. I was a deeply committed Christian, but it just, I had that one week area of the intellectual side of things because I just, I didn't really know a lot of this was out there. One of the things that helped me a lot in, in my, my journey through doubt, and, and today I still have questions. I mean, I'm not omniscient, right? So that leaves lots of room for a lot of questions. But one of the things that helped me was to realize that every worldview, every, every uh, system through which you view the world, whether that's an atheistic system or whether that's a Christian system uh, or, or some other system, ultimately it turns out, needs to be held by faith. So even the atheist holds his yeah. view that God does not exist by faith. He has to have faith that God doesn't exist. He cannot prove that there is no God. And uh, that helped me to understand that, that faith is um, a necessary, inextricable part of the equation. And I think sometimes as people who want evidence, we want to take faith out of the equation. We want to say, no, 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 give me evidence. I'm not a faith person. I don't want to go like this and just believe. I want to see all the dots connected and show me your work. Yeah. Well, even the most brilliant scientist, mathematician, uh, physicist, whatever, ultimately comes to a place of having to have faith in some basic ideas in order for them to even get started in their computations. Yeah. And so I said, okay, now the question is, what do I want to put my faith in? And that sort of took a lot of the fear out of it and uh, sort of leveled the playing field between the different worldviews. Yeah, and I think too, a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what faith actually is. They think it's some kind of blind leap in the dark. Mm -hmm. In fact, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, said something along the lines of faith is believing something in spite of there being no evidence, and sometimes because there's no evidence. And, you know, sadly, I think a lot of Christians think that is the definition of faith. No, but it couldn't be. The Bible, I know. The Bible talks about faith being trust, and it's not without good reason. We have good reason to put our trust in Jesus. We have good reason to trust that these things are true. Well, I think that's why. Apologetics is so important. I'm so thankful for what you're doing to help people understand why they believe. Because it's like um, when I say to you, uh, I have great faith in my doctor. Well, that's not a compliment to me that I have great faith. That's a compliment to my doctor. And the reason I have great faith in my doctor is because he's so good, because he's so faithful, he's so skilled, he's so talented. His reputation is um, excellent. And that's why I have faith in my doctor. And so when we say we have faith in God, apologetics helps us to understand why he's worthy of our trust. Yeah. He's so good, he's so faithful, he's so powerful, he's so creative. He's the basis for everything good and beautiful and true. Without him, life has no meaning.
Yeah. That's why I put my trust and my faith in him. Yeah, and I think people need to understand too with apologetics, we're not, we're not saying like, take this evidence in place of faith or uh, we're not saying that apologetics is the gospel. Of course, apologetics is not the gospel. But hopefully what we can do when we do good apologetics is if there's like doubt or there's an intellectual obstacle standing in front of the cross, we kind of get to clear those obstacles yes. away so the person can take a, a good look at the actual gospel. I, I love this. I can't wait for us to come back. Coming up next, Elisa and I are going to discuss some of the theological issues that the church is confronting right now. I'm back with Elisa, and now we're going to continue our conversation on apologetics in a really practical way. So let's talk about some of the big questions about Christianity and, and how we can properly respond to them. So, Elisa, every once in a while, you'll hear um, a heartbreaking story in the news about one of your favorite musicians, or maybe it's a pastor, uh, like the one that you were looking up to in your church, or maybe even an apologist. Mm -hmm. One of the, the heroes of the faith who has helped you to dispel your doubts and answer the big questions, and you find out that they themselves have walked away from the faith. That's just earth-shattering. How should we respond to those kinds of things? Yeah. Just go cry in our Chick-fil-A soup? Uh, <laughs> or do we say, no, wait a minute, uh, God is actually bigger than my favorite pastor or apologist. Yeah, and I think that's the big point, isn't it? I think that when we see stories like that online, and sometimes people will take an hour to three hours to explain all the very specific reasons they don't believe in Jesus anymore, and it can be very rattling. It can be very rattling and destabilizing for Christians to, to hear that and to somebody they've looked up to. But I think ultimately in the grand picture, considering God's sovereignty, I think this is something we can actually find a lot of hope in because A, the Bible predicts this is gonna happen, right? We know people are gonna be walking away from their faith and uh, it's nothing new. If we read the New Testament, Paul talks about Demas who was, with, was one of them and then he wasn't. These are people who, walked away. And this is something that we should expect as Christians. This is something that, uh, in my mind, actually kind of validates a lot of what the Bible has to say, because what a prediction to make. And then we actually see it playing out. Uh, so I think that's that's number one, is just to, to, to have a hopeful eye to history and to God's sovereignty in these things. But also, uh, I think it's, it's refining the church. I think that it's shaken us up and we have to decide, am I really in on this? Do I really believe this? Or did I just believe this because that guy believed it. Yeah, th th those are hard questions. And, and I think that's exactly what, and the Lord can use those things for good. He's using, he's working all things together for good. And I found that it has done just that. It's purified my heart. It's yes. caused me to ask the hard questions and say, am I really owning my faith or am I leasing this from my parents or from my, my heroes that, uh, that I've always looked up to? Yeah. How, how important do you think is personal apologetics for people who are listening? Not just that you're an apologist and, uh, and that you like the topic, but that somebody personally dives into their own doubts and fears and questions about their faith. I think it's so vital. I can't, I, it's, it's, you can't exaggerate how important it is that if a doubt pops up or if a question pops up, do not push those things down and ignore it and try to pretend like it's not there. 
we have to face those things. We have to take those things to the Lord. And God can handle that stuff. And I think that so many people think, again, we talked in the last segment about the, this misunderstanding about the nature of faith. I think some Christians think, man, if I have doubts, if I have questions, it means I don't have a good faith or I'm not a strong Christian or maybe I have a, you know, I, there's something wrong with me. No, there's, there's nothing wrong with you. God gave us minds. He gave us this intellect to think things through. He gave us reason. And, and when we don't use that, it can actually end up causing sort of an eruption later of bigger doubts. And then, you know, you watch the video on YouTube where the guy's telling you all the reasons that he doesn't believe anymore. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that can take people out. So we have to own our own faith. This can't just be something that we caught from our culture. I, and this is another thing. When you really listen to some of these deconstruction stories, in virtually every single one that I've listened to, and I've listened to a lot of them, you will always see that there, there really isn't a real defined explanation of what their actual faith was for them in the first place. So they'll talk about the church they grew up in. They'll talk about maybe even that, that they prayed yeah. or that they, they didn't want to sin or, or some of these things. But, but there's, there's like, is, was there a moment when you realized you're a sinner and you cried out to Jesus to save you from your sins? Yeah. And, and you don't typically that's not there. find that in those stories. You find the, the deconstruction part and the Christian culture part. And I, and I don't mean to downplay anyone's story because there may be somebody out there that, that has something like that, but I listen for that. And mm -hmm. I don't often hear that part of it. Yeah. How do we balance having such a powerful weapon as apologetics, or I shouldn't say weapon, maybe I should say a tool as apologetics, when we're in a back and forth with somebody and, and, and not sort of club them over the head with answers and maintain a spirit of kindness, gentleness, and all of that. How, how important is that, that we just don't go, you know, thug life on them and just drop, <laughs> drop the hammer? Yeah, yeah, because apologetics can sound aggressive sometimes. You know, you can look up apologetics online and you'll see debates and people duking out different topics and right. things. But I think ultimately the heart behind why I do it and why so many of my friends do it is because we are truly, this is a saying in apologetics, we don't want to win the argument. We want to win the person mm. to, to Christ. And so there's a lot of creative ways we can do that. And especially intense conversations when things are getting a little bit heated and blood pressure is going up. It can help to just really become a student so that you can really understand the other person's position. And that requires asking some really good questions. And what I've found is that sometimes asking the right questions can actually annoy annoy the person more than trying to club them over the head with truth because it's really causing them to think. That's ultimately what happened to me in that classroom scenario. This pastor had planted these doubts and basically kind of annoyed or irritated that sort of black and white truth thing in me. And it caused me to think much more deeply about what I believed and why I believed it. And so I think that asking really good questions is a great way to diffuse tension in conversations and also to get the other person thinking, but it also puts us in a position to want to learn as well. And it's okay to not know. And that's, I think, the thing people are afraid of, is they sit down with somebody yeah. who's got these big, bolder questions about the, the faith, and they think, well, I don't know this stuff. I won't know how to answer them. And I always tell people, you don't have to be a scholar. You just have to be curious. If you're willing to walk with somebody through their doubts and questions and discover the answers together, what a great way to disciple people. What a great way to grow in your own faith. And then there are people who have those questions for themselves and they're really in in times of doubt and it's just it's really important that we face those things and but doubt kind of can go one way or the other you can actually doubt with the intention of disbelief that's already there unbelief or you can doubt really wanting to know 
the answers. And it's, yeah. that's what I would call honest doubt. Like, I want to seek truth. And if you're on that lane, you're going to be fine. Yeah. What is one question or uh, area of doubt that people are really struggling with today? And, and how can we help them with that area? Well, I think it, it has to do with biblical reliability. I think that, uh, that if Christians doubt that the Bible is reliable, that it tells the truth, and that it, we have an accurate copy of it. Um, if, they, if they can doubt that, then it really sort of just destabilizes your whole entire belief system. Because there are things we can know about God, like you mentioned Romans 1. There are things we can know about His divine nature just by looking out into creation. But the, the actual doctrines, like the Trinity and uh, the blood atonement of Jesus, you're not going to get that by looking at a tree. And so we need the Bible. And But if, but if, if people are doubting the Bible, then that can cause a, a very much a, a deconstruction and a destabilizing of their faith. So give us some reasons why we can trust that, first, that we have an accurate copy of what was originally written. Yeah, well, okay, so this was something that I got really just super nerdy about when I was going through my study time because I just had to get to the bottom of this question. And I learned that there's a, an actual science called textual criticism. Now, this is a science that scholars use to reconstruct the wording of ancient documents when we don't have the originals anymore. So if you've ever read Shakespeare, if you've ever read the Gettysburg Address, you can thank a textual critic because that's how they reconstruct those documents. And so to do good textual criticism, you want to have a lot lot of copies, you want to have a lot of manuscripts, and then you want to have as early and, uh, and reliable manuscripts as you possibly can. And, you know, just a general flyover, because we only have a few minutes here, is that ultimately speaking, the New Testament has more manuscripts to demonstrate its reliability and earlier manuscripts than any other work of ancient classical literature. In fact, it just dwarfs those in comparison. So if we can have confidence that the Bible that we hold in our hands today is an accurate copy translation, transmission of what was originally written by the authors, but how do we know that what they wrote was true in the first place? Right, and that's, that's kind of the second question when we discover biblical reliability. And there are several different ways to approach this question. We can look at archeological evidence, which just continues to uh, just support facts that are in the New Testament. We can look at non-Christian history. In fact, we have like 10 or so uh, non-Christian historical sources that wrote about Jesus within about 150 years of his life. And every single one of the facts we learn from those corroborates something from the New Testament. We can look at the way historians look at eyewitness testimony. You have four gospels that have all the markings of historical accuracy. They reported embarrassing details about Jesus even, about their, the hero of their faith, where yeah. they record that people thought he was demon possessed and a, that he was a drunkard. And they, they talk about themselves in a way that if you, know, if you were making this up, you, you wouldn't write yeah. these things. I mean, just check social media for proof of that. Nobody, like the, the most you'll see on social media of somebody doing something right. like that is a very cute no makeup selfie where you're just like, you know, yeah. how brave you supermodel. If anything today, you see uh, bad guys uh, actually wanting to cover up the bad things that they've done, not sort of willingly expose them to people like you right. see in the New Testament. Right, and even just, for example, one, one point of historical reliability that makes me think that I would not do that if I was making it up, is the fact that they report women being the first eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. If you really wanted to make something up in that day and in that culture, you would not 
have women be the eyewit the first eyewitnesses to the key event that your whole new belief system is going to stand or fall on because the testimony of women just wasn't that valuable back then. It's hard for us to understand that now with how far we've come, but uh, back then you, you wouldn't have done that if you were wanting people to buy in on it. So it, it's like, why would you do that? Well, you do it if it's true. So these are, these are tough questions for the critics, and these are the, the kinds of questions through apologetics that, that I believe make the critics start to backslide mm -hmm. and actually uh, start to consider the truth claims of the scriptures. And, and finally, I love how apologetics draws people into conversations so that you and I can eventually navigate them to the message of the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. Yeah. Apologetics can clear the boulders out of the way. It's the, sometimes the bait that draws the fish. And then as fishers of men, we then reveal uh, the hook of the gospel that can pull them into, into the boat and, and they can be saved and they can know God for who he truly is. Yeah, that's well put. That's, that's exactly right. That's why we do it, right? Yeah. We, we study, it's like an intellectual act of worship for me because I'm not naturally an intellectual, I'm more of a flaky artist, but to study and to help people sort of work out some of these doubts is, has been so such a satisfying ministry that the Lord dropped in my lap that I never would have dreamed up for myself. Yeah. And it's, it's really like an intellectual act of worship. I love doing that. Tell me the name of, uh, of, your, of your book. It's called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. And essentially it's my story of walking through that class that, uh, where my faith was rocked and where I looked for answers. And the reason it's in response to progressive Christianity is because that church went on to identify as a progressive Christian church. And then this whole movement of progressive Christianity now is deceiving so many Christians by uh, redefining and rejecting some of the essential doctrines of the faith. So that's why I called it Another Gospel. I argue in the book, it's actually a different religion. It gives you a different God, a different Jesus. It's not a Jesus who can save you. Alisa, thanks so much for your time today. I've loved these conversations.